Jared, what a pleasure to be here with you, hosted by the University of Louisville, here in Louisville, where the living is easy and the leaving is hard. <laughs> This book, this new book, The World Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from Traditional Societies. It's an amazing book, but it's, it's just anything but sentimental. Yet, I was surprised by how people focused. It's softer, really, I think, than The Third Chimpanzee, Why Sex is Fun, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Your publisher has termed it your most personal book to date. And as I was puzzling over that, because I agree with your publisher, I came up with this hypothesis, why that might have been, and I'd like to just try it out on you and see if it flies with the author. When you open Guns, Germs, and Steel, I mean, you're mega bestseller. I mean, that was really, you'd written these wonderful books before, but that was just really bursting on the scenes. Um, you open it with a conversation with this charismatic New Guinea politician, Yali, and he asks you a question. Why is it that you white people developed so much cargo, became so rich and powerful, and we New Guineans have so little cargo of our own. And answering Yali's question launched you on this very far-ranging effort to pull together all this information from genetics, epidemiology, biogeography, evolutionary biology, geology. But in the world until yesterday, you're kind of turning the tables. And you're looking to the New Guineans, especially, and other traditional people, to answer your questions. You're inquiring of them which aspects of their lives might be better than our own way of doing things, and which of their life ways we might be better off without is this one reason the book seems so much more introspective and personal? Or is this just a life stage thing, grandfatherhood or impending? That, that's a really interesting observation, of Sarah, which I had not thought of, the reversal between guns, germs, and steel and the current book. And I should like to say at the outset that I, too, am just delighted to be back in Kentucky, which I first visited when I was, gosh, 18 years old, which is years, what, 57 years ago, and I'm, I'm delighted to be back in Louisville, and it's wonderful to be with you. I'm thinking, Sarah, of possibly your and my first meeting when we had just produced or were just about to produce babies. This was 25, 26 years ago, and it's wonderful to be with you again. Your comment about the the reversal between Guns, Germs, and Steel and the current book, The World Until Yesterday, about Guns, Germs, and Steel, I being asked a question by New Guineans and then I providing the answer, and The World Until Yesterday, I'm getting answers from New Guineans. This book originated in a somewhat different way. My original idea was that this book would be 
an autobiographical account of my observations and experiences in New Guinea. But my editor said, Jared, people are used to big books from you about everything around the world. They want more than an autobiography. And so the book morphed from my experiences in New Guinea to incorporating the observations of other people, such as you and other anthropologists and sociologists in tribal societies around the world. But it is the case that the book comes down to learning from what tribal societies have have done, how they've evolved, both learning the things that they did that seemed to us terrible, such as routinely killing twins. I, as the father of twins, do not recommend killing twins. <laughs> and also learning from the wonderful things they do, including how they bring up children, how they treat old people, how they regard dangers. You and I have both been interested and in some ways learned too late from what tribal societies did with bringing up children. Well, you know, we, when we first had our children, roughly at about the same time our first kids were born, we each embarked on this new endeavor with very bad advice of a different kind. And I think you and your wife, Marie, were sort of told, well, you know, almost the old Watsonian behaviorist advice, don't do too much, don't cuddle them too much, you'll spoil the child if they cry at night, kiss them goodnight, tiptoe out, and leave them be. And I had very different Advice. My mother certainly did that, but I had been an undergraduate major in anthropology and then a graduate student in anthropology just about the time that the Harvard Kalahari Project researchers were coming back from what was really the first study of infant care in a traditional society, and it was all about... These mothers are in constant contact with their baby. They're nursing on demand. They're continuous sucklers, skin-to-skin contact all the time. And so when I first gave birth and wanted to do it differently from how my mother had done it, that's what I tried. And, of course, it was so... It was. I think the bad advice I got was more humane than yours. Uh, better for the babies, but it was very hard, very stressful for the mother, and I felt very torn because I'd be home alone all day. I was a researcher, and my husband would be off in his lab at Harvard Medical School, and I was home alone with a baby in constant skin-to-skin contact, (laughs) nursing on the mano, and thinking, wait a minute, and why, why, why aren't I just thrilled to turn my life over to this little gene vehicle? I mean, I was a, I was an evolutionist. And I wasn't thrilled. And that's really what launched me to study and learn much more about this and to find out, oh, wait, these guys who, like John Bowlby attachment, these guys had this idea that humans were going to be like chimpanzees or savannah baboons and carry their babies everywhere. And then I learn about all the primates that don't do it that way and begin to wonder, oh, other primates who have very costly, slow-maturing young and so forth, we're going to need a lot of help. And that's what I like about this book. I mean, you really give alloparents, group members other than the parents, their fair shake. You, 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 You explain how much help human mothers need. They need a lot of social support. That's something, Sarah, about which I have 
unusual personal experience because, yes, human mothers need help when they're parenting singletons, but Marie and I had twins. And with twins, whatever the theories said about (laughs) mothers counting, the reality is that when you've got two crying babies at the same time, or when you've got one baby that cried and go to sleep, and then another baby cries and wakes up, there's no way that Marie was going to be able to take two babies at once. There was no way that she was going to be able to wake up for every baby during the night. So it was clear that Marie had to take one baby and I had to take one baby. There was, and, and in fact, we would walk around in, the, in our den, each of us holding a baby, singing silly songs to the baby, trying to get our baby to go to sleep. Marie and I would pass each other. Is your baby starting to go to sleep? My baby, I think he's ready to go down. We put him down, and then, then he bursts up again. But, but we, like you, Sarah, were also given bad advice. When, when our twins took a, a while to come home from the hospital, and when the first twin, Max, came home from the hospital, we were so thrilled to have him with us and no longer in the incubator that we brought him to bed with us and put him in bed between us. And he started to, we heard his breathing, but we, we had no experience as parents of newborns, and he seemed to be breathing rapidly. So we called the hospital nurse, the ICU, and said, our baby seems to be breathing rapidly. Mm-hmm. Where is your baby? He's in bed between us. Oh, he's overheating. Get him, get him out of bed. Put him in a crib. And then the next advice was get the crib out of your bedroom and put him in a separate bedroom. That's the advice that we would not follow if we were doing it again, to banish the baby and let them cry themselves to sleep. It was horrible, agonizing. I think it was probably harder for Marie even than for you because the, the studies people like Alison Fleming have done, they, she had tape recordings of two kinds of babies waking up from a nap. One, they're just sort of disgruntled and waking up a little cranky from a nap, a little bit of crying. And the other was tape recordings of babies being circumcised in real distress. And when she played the baby in distress, the dad was up like a shot right with the mother. But the cranky baby, the mother was responding to just a little bit faster. So it was like a little... Ed Wilson used to talk about the twig being bent just a little bit. But of course, over time, the baby gets used to the mother. And then the dad says, why do I even bother? But with twins, you didn't have any choice. There was going to be duress if you didn't respond. Yeah, there were a couple of things about uh, twins here. The example that you mentioned, um, that if there's something that really goes wrong, so the father jumps up. Um, In 1993, um, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles, a big earthquake. Um, Our sons were five years old at the time, and they were about 25 feet down the hall in their own bedroom. The earthquake was at around, what, 5 a.m. at night. There was a big crash as the lamp from my bedside table fell over. The house was still shaking, and even though the house was shaking, and in retrospect, it was a dangerous thing to do, I was straight up out of the bed and tottered down the shaking house into the bedroom to see the twins, and they were still asleep. The other example is that, is that with twins, um, parents of twins have a problem making an individual relationship because we were presented with this solid, unbreakable phalanx of babies that were tightly bounded to each other, and we had difficulty making a one-on-one relationship. So from the time my kids were six years old onwards, I started taking each boy 
on trips. Each boy got six trips a year with daddy to whatever they were interested in. It was a bonding experience in which I got to know my sons as individuals rather than as a phalanx. But I, in the process, I saw what they were interested in. Max, from age three onwards, was interested in snakes. So I took him on snake, frog, lizard trips. Joshua became interested in history. And so I took him on Civil War history and then Pacific War history. And so as a father of twins, um, I'm glad... Gosh, would I have preferred Singleton's? We got what we got, and I love what we got. <laughs> it's interesting that you are exposing them to your own love of natural history so early. Though, of course, children gravitate to that anyway. But it reminds me of how eclectic your own preparation to write this particular book ha- has been. I mean, as an undergraduate at Harvard, you were mainly interested in history, writing, languages, and even as a graduate student earning your PhD in physiology at the University of Cambridge, you nearly dropped out, I gather, to become a linguist. And then after becoming a professor of physiology, you almost embarked on this separate career in evolutionary biology and birds. And earlier in life, like when you were the ages of your sons when you started taking them on snake trips and, and, and various trips. Uh, were you already um, preparing for this late life career that you, you, I mean, what was your, your, how did you get into all these interests? I was not preparing consciously, um, uh, Sarah, but w- w- my mother was a school teacher as well as a professional concert pianist and a gifted teacher. Mom taught me to read when I was three years old, and I read a lot. My sister Susan um, told me something that I hadn't realized, that Mum saw me reading when I was about five years old a book of, book of British history about the kings of England, and Mum saw that I was taking notes on it and at five years old. And Susan said that was when Mum realized that Jared had potential. <laughs> but but early on, I was interested in lots of things. I grew up during World War II, Um, I was four years old at the time of Pearl Harbor. My father put up on the wall of my bedroom two maps, and each day he would stick the pins in to mark the shifting battle lines in Europe and in the Pacific. So I grew up with geography literally in my face. Then when I was a graduate student, I was in Europe, Cambridge, England, then Germany for four years. And again, geography was in my face because my friends who, like me, were born in 1937, depending upon whether they were born in England, Yugoslavia, the UK, or Germany, they either had peaceful lives like me or they were orphaned or they were bombed out of their houses or they were separated for seven years from their father captured at Singapore. So history and geography were in my face early. I loved languages. Um, In school, high school, I learned my first four languages and then another three or four at university. As you say, I nearly dropped out of physiology to become a linguist. Um, At college, I started as an astronomy major. Um, I took courses in history, oral epic poetry, and in Cambridge, England, graduate 
graduate school in Cambridge did not require you to take any courses. You weren't permitted to take courses. All you had to do was research, which left me lots of free time. I devoted the time to reading up on history, and then I discovered the organ music of Bach. So my last year at Cambridge, I was spending eight hours a day practicing the organ music of Bach. Wow. Uh, well, you know, your, <laughs> your, uh, your, your interest in, in languages reminds me that of... I had two favorite sections in this book. One was your... Basically, the strong case you make for multilingual upbringing. And it, it's such a controversial subject. And I just... I was completely persuaded by your, your reasons. Just saw in the paper today, this morning, uh, another study of... Uh, Showing that old people, you can you can delay some of your dementia and so forth if you're multilingual, and that's just more good news. So I like that. But the other favorite part was Chapter Seven on constructive paranoia, and I actually read excerpts from that chapter at Christmas lunch where we had a bunch of young people, my 26-year-old son and various of his friends, and. You know, the whole concept of be a little more careful than you think you should be. I, I love that chapter, and I, I think actually the most exciting part of the book was your describing what happened before you fully absorbed the, those lessons and drifted out to sea. How long were you floating out there in the ocean? Oh, the, this was a, an accident with a, with a boat overturning off Indonesian New Guinea, dumping us in the water. Um, I think the accident probably happened around 4 p.m. We were in the water. We were picked up 15 minutes before sunset, 6.15. As you know, in the tropics at the equator, the sun sets vertically, and it gets dark very quickly. If, If that sailboat had passed not 15 minutes before sunset, and pick me up, but 15 minutes after sunset, we wouldn't have been seen, we, we couldn't have survived the night, and I wouldn't be here. So I learned from that, but I learned earlier, um, in a more banal incident, uh, a case when I was camping out with New Guineans in forest to study birds. I proposed as a campsite at the base of a big, wonderful tree, and to my surprise, the New Guineans freaked out, and they said, we're not going to camp there. What's the matter? The tree is dead. Well, I looked, yeah, it's dead, but it's huge, and it's not going to fall over for 50 years. No, they would not sleep under a dead tree, and I thought they were paranoid. But with each night in the New Guinea forest, every night in New Guinea jungle, you're sleeping out, you hear a tree or a couple of trees fall over somewhere. And then I started to do the numbers. If your chance of sleeping under a dead tree if your chance it will fall over on you is one in a thousand. You're not going to die that night, but in three years of sleeping in the forest, that's 1,080 nights, you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I've extrapolated. Sarah, this morning, the, the most dangerous thing that I did all day today was I took a shower. If you just read the obituary columns of any newspaper, I'm serious, you see that a big risk for older people is slipping and falling in the shower on the sidewalk, dying or getting crippled. And again, you think of the numbers. If my chances of slipping in the shower and breaking my pelvis are one in 1,000, I'm now 75, 
statistically, chance is good that I'll live to 90, and with luck, maybe 95 or 100. So 15 years means 5,475 showers. If my chances of falling in the shower are 1 in 1,000, I'm going to get killed five times before I, I reach my life quota. So I've got to keep the risk of falling in the shower far below 1 in 1,000. It's kind of interesting to think that after all your years in New Guinea, the lesson you come home with that's most pressing is grab hold of that bar in your hotel shower. That's, 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 that's probably good advice. It's a daily, it's a daily risk. You know, yeah, other, yeah. other risks about watching out for, for airplanes that crash and crazy gunmen. Realistically, I'm very unlikely to be killed by a gunman or a plane crash. I'm much more likely to be killed either as a result of a fall at my age, or a car crash. And from New Guineans, I've learned to be constructively paranoid about those things. <laughs> I hope that phrase is going into the English lexicon, because it's a good one, um, even for people older than my son. Yeah. Um, reading this book, you know, I can't imagine a stronger endorsement for the field of anthropology, where we have this quest to understand human diversity. And I have to tell you, Jared, it couldn't have come at a better time. You probably saw the issue of Science Magazine two weeks ago with the article about anthropology's Annus Horribilis and how Governor Rick Scott of Florida announced that anthropologists were no longer needed. Forbes Magazine pronounced it one of the ten worst and most useless majors. And I think it might be good to ask you, what advice would you give anthropologists? I mean, besides telling people to send copies of your book to their state legislators and governors, do the current practitioners need to clean up their act, or are the problems outside anthropology? Are they inside anthropology, outside anthropology? Uh, Is it a matter of communication? You went to a department from physiology to geography. You didn't go to anthropology, though you're really drawing so heavily on ethnography and anthropology in this book. What's your take on anthropology? I hesitate to tell you, Sarah, because you've had much more experience from inside about this, but my take and answer to your question is that the, the problems are inside. Anthropology is a discipline of such obvious importance. It's the study of people. It's the study of different societies. But in order for anthropology to enrich the world, anthropologists have to communicate not just to each other, but to the general public. This is something that you are very good at, but most anthropologists not only don't attempt to communicate to the general public, like, in fact, the majority of scholars, they scorn or have negative views about those scholars who try to communicate to the public. They'll say things like, if you're writing books for the public, like your wonderful books, it must be because you're all washed up as a researcher and you've no ideas, so instead you're prostituting yourself by writing this stuff for the public. Also, there's there's envy, and as you know, your discipline is, I regret to say, the nastiest of disciplines. I've worked in many disciplines, and there's no discipline that I've encountered in which people are nastier to each other than anthropology. That, that's, that's not just my view. The, the editor of Scientific American commented that after seeing so many, 
articles in all possible fields that the editor, too, had encountered no discipline nastier than anthropologists. Um, if, if anthropologists want to communicate to the public, they have to get over their scorn. The U.S. Congress and the governor of Florida and other states is not going to understand the importance of anthropology if anthropologists trash those anthropologists who try to explain the fascination of their discipline. In, in line with your point, have you seen the title of Napoleon Chagnon's forthcoming book? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Noble Savages, yeah. uh, My Life Among, my, An Anthropologist's Life Among Two, no, My Life Among Two Dangerous Tribes, the Yanomamo and the Anthropologists. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's sobering. It's sobering, really, to think that. In my field, some of the best books and the most insights seem to be coming from people who were not actually trained in anthropology. And when you look at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, which is just the premier place for doing a lot of work on primate evolution and human evolution now, none of the main directors and the main people there were trained in anthropology. Uh, and this is kind of a common refrain. And, and, of course, you chose to go to geography, the field that sort of celebrates the maps your father posted up on your walls. Did you, you had the sense that they were more open, open-minded or more compatible? Or I, should say, I should say, frankly, that the reason that I'm in a geography department now, when, when I decided to, to close my research career in gallbladder physiology, um, in which I was the world's leading expert, but the world importance of gallbladders had its limits. And I, I, I wanted to do something for the world of my children 50 or 60 years from now. The world of my children is not going to be solved by building better gallbladders. So I, I wanted to switch. The, the choice was either to go into a geography department or an anthropology department. And I came very close on two occasions to join an anthropology department. The reasons that I joined a geog my geography department then are somewhat chance. It happens that geography is, I'm ve very happy in my geography department at UCLA. Geographers, unlike anthropologists, are happy people who are really nice to each other. Our, geog <laughs> Our geography department is diverse. We've got physical geographers, biogeographers, human geographers, and quantitative geographers. But we all get along well with each other. We don't trash each other's research, and, and we don't try to get positions from the other discipline. And yet, as you know, many anthropology departments in the United States have split into two groups. They can't even talk with each other. But you know more about that than I do. I was actually going to move into the larger world issues because actually I guess my favorite of all your books is Collapse. It's a book I, I sent the abridged CD to all my county supervisors because I, I thought, you know, we have problems. Let, let, let's think about them. And this, this book is... It, it's... I wish Collapse were better read because I think it's so important what you, what you were trying uh, to get at. But it also, thinking back on things you said there, made me wonder about what is your prognosis for New Guinea. You had a list of things that seemed to be recipes for, uh, well, fail states and trouble, and it had to do with rapid population growth, high child mortality, large numbers of 
young men without employment prospects. And we can think of a lot of parts of the world right now where that's certainly uh, going on. Uh, what is your, what, what makes you hopeful about New Guinea? Um, or are you not? I mean, what is your prognosis for that part of the world? And then what, what, are, what else should we be thinking about? I really want, I, I, I would, I feel like your most important messages are along those lines. And prognosis for, for New Guinea, we can think of a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. Um, a worst case scenario is that that if we if the world fails to solve its major problems of consumption, inability to solve disputes between nations peacefully, population growth, resource depletion. And so if first world civilization collapses, as is possible, who's going to survive and do well? Well, it's going to be my friends in New Guinea because they, they know, they've known recently how to make stone tools. They know how to be small-scale farmers. They know how to live in small groups without kings and bureaucrats um, and wonderful events like this. So they, they'll do fine. Um, as for what's going on in New Guinea now, New Guinea is divided politically between two nations, Papua New Guinea, democracy in the east, um, and Indonesian province in the west. There are big problems um, of rampant logging, rampant oil palm plantations, rampant mining, about which I'm being... There are things to be said about the large mine, but I think it's better not to say them. Um, So New Guinea um, is suffering big um, environmental destruction problems. On the other hand, New Guinea has possibly... has outside the Amazon basin the largest areas of undisturbed rainforest in the world, which means that you can make messes in New Guinea for longer than you can make messes in most other places in the world and still have lots of wonderful jungle left. But it can't go on forever. Well, I know for a while you were, maybe you still are, advising Chevron about, I assume, responsible exploitation of New Guinea resources. How was that going? How is it going? Are you still doing it? I still, I still am. I'm still going back to, to New Guinea. Chevron, which managed the large producing oil fields of Papua New Guinea, sold out its stake to Oil Search in partnership with ExxonMobil. And I visited the oil fields a couple of times after Chevron sold out. There was fear that with Oil Search, which, which is a Papua New Guinea-based firm, environmental protection would decrease, that oil firm would... Chevron was constructively paranoid. I've never seen a national park managed so beautifully, so rigorously, as Chevron managed its oil field, because there were several... There were quite a few reasons why Chevron saw that the bottom line would benefit by being ultra-careful. There was fear that this would not be the case with oil search. In fact, oil search has been even more careful than Chevron in managing the oil fields well. So the problems in New Guinea are not what goes on inside the oil fields. The oil fields are in good shape. The problem is in New Guinea, is inst- in Papua New Guinea instead, is the stuff going on outside the oil fields. I was curious, reading your book, what you would think about the factors that have led the people of New Guinea and their worldviews, certainly Highland New Guinea, to be so different from 
hunter-gatherers that I have sort of read the most about, uh, for example, the African hunter-gatherers like the Hadza and the Aka and the Efe. And your book, of course, you stress that all of us alive today were still living as these people were living 11,000 years ago, the world before yesterday. But what about the world before last week, you know, when these people who I sort of think of as proxies for our, the ancestors of all the human, all six or seven billion of us on, on the earth today. How, I think they have, to me, such curious ideas that the tensions between men and women, the suspicions, the, um, uh, the, uh, that all these notions about women and things like menstruation, childbirth, are polluting this obsession with the pollution by women. And so, that, I think people like the Hatsa or the Kung would think that they were as odd as maybe they think Westerners are. You know, it would be the idea, for example, of ritual strangulation of widows like you write about in the Kaolong would be totally outside of their imagining. Uh, what kind of factors could lead societies to spiral into these peculiar worldviews? Interesting, very interesting question, Sarah. Uh, a n- number of things. Um, in Africa, yes, there are some hunter-gatherer groups left, notably the Kung, the Hadza, and, and many of the, the pygmies. In New Guinea, the largest number of New Guineans are small-scale farmers. In the hunter-gatherers, there are some groups of hunter-gatherers in the lowlands, um, but most people in New Guinea practice farming, so that's one thing. Uh, Second thing, the incredible diversity of New Guinea, 1,000 languages. One out of seven of the world's languages are spoken in New Guinea, and people always ask me, Jared, you really mean languages? Don't you mean different dialects? No, I mean different languages. On the average, every 10 miles in the highlands is a new language. So I, as I love languages, when I started in New Guinea, I came out to my first group, the foray. I began to learn foray. And then after a month, we moved 60 miles. And I discovered that we had shot through five language groups. And I, Jared, you're not going to learn a new language every month. So there's this great linguistic diversity. There's an enormous cultural diversity. It's... The diversity is because people have been there for 46,000 years. The terrain is mountainous terrain. Groups in one valley are cut off from groups in the next valley. The habitats are also very varied. New Guinea is one of the three places in the world with snow on the equator. Mountains in New Guinea go up to 16,000 feet. Um, And so there are glaciers in New Guinea. There's enormous um, habitat um, diversity. And then on top of it, um, what one can call steamrollers, population steamrollers from the expansion of farmers. Africa has had steamrollers. The Bantu farmers expanded and overran all of sub-equatorial Africa, except the areas where Bantu agriculture couldn't work. New Guinea never had a steamroller. The incredible dissection of the terrain meant that there was no farming group that overran New Guinea as the Bantu overran most of Africa. And so the, the original diversity of Africa as the continent longest inhabited by people, most of the original diversity in Africa was erased within the last several thousand years by farming expansions. But the original diversity in New Guinea has not been erased. The, the similarities, I guess, that I see between African hunter-gatherers and the New Guineans are this emphasis on face-to-face interactions, this 
constant sociality, the lack of interest in privacy. And I'm thinking, you write, what we can learn from traditional societies, how that's going to translate into a society where we are increasingly compartmentalized, where face-to-face contact is actually being replaced by all kinds of digital communication. And I'm thinking especially of mother-infant and uh, alloparent infant, the importance of responsive care and monitoring the mother's face and the importance of eye contact. Babies are looking at eyes before anything else. And here, mothers are looking at their iPhones, not at their baby's eyes. Uh, How are we going to translate that? I mean, does part of you want to just check out the digital stuff? Well, it's easy for me, Sarah, because I don't have digital stuff. I do not know how to turn on the wretched computer. How do you do anything in the hotel? We're staying in this wonderful, uh, very high-tech hotel. Behold my pen and yellow paper. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I do things. Um, but, yeah, face-to-face, con- in, in New Guinea, I think in the epilogue to my book, I had a sentence, um, being in New Guinea is like seeing the world briefly in vivid colors when otherwise it's gray. New Guinea is vivid. When you're talking with New Guinea, it's like you and me now. It's face-to-face. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at their text messaging. They're not stopping to take a phone call. It's face-to-face all day. It's, face, it's talking all night. It's difficult to sleep in a New Guinea village because New Guineans wake up during the night and then they have a conversation shouting to someone in a hut on the other side of, side of the village. Um, and yet, we're having a generation. Your and my kids um, are used to their text messaging and their iPhones oh, and their yeah. computers. I'll tell you a, 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 a sad story, which is that a, a cousin of mine um, was at a restaurant um, where there was a, a young couple, a man and woman, seated at a table. They were obviously a little awkward. It seemed pretty clear that they were on first date, sizing each other up but they weren't talking to each other. They were text messaging back and forth, <laughs> partly because they were shy, but partially because they're s- socially so unskilled. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually something I was wondering about in New Guinea, certainly Highland New Guinea, where you spent the most time. There's all this gregariousness and sociality. These people are wonderfully adept at social expression and so forth, and yet... The marriages I was reading about, both in your book and in some of the ethnographies of New Guinea, it seems like there's not that level of of husband-wife competing. If I lived in New Guinea, if I were a New Guinean, I'd really miss the companionate marriage. Do you encounter them or...? That's, an, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, one might say, how am I, Jared, to know what a New Guinea husband and a New Guinea wife really feel to- towards each other? I can only say what the men, not the women, the men that I've worked with, with tell me. Um, I'm struck by what I would call the instrumentality of New Guinea relationships, not just man-woman, but also man-man relationships. Um, I remember one of the New Guinea men that I knew best. We were chatting with other New Guineans, and one New Guinean said, so I bought my wife, and I'm going to stay with her for the rest of my life. And 
another New Guinean there said, I bought my wife, but she can't speak my language. I haven't learned her language. And if I, I can say the important things in her language, such as cook the sweet potatoes and go fetch water, but for anything else, I have to get my mother, and maybe I'll eventually give, give away this wife. And so the first New Guinean said to me, he was shocked. Mm. And he said, uh, th- that's, that's bad. So I brought my wife in, and I, I'm going to stay with her. And yes, if she dies, I'll get another wife. <laughs> well, you know, that, that kind of thing, your book set me off to read Sabine Kugler's uh, story about Amazon Child. You know, I was able to get it in English on Kindle. And uh, this is this daughter of missionaries who grows up among the Kalua. She talks about the guy who's irritated because his wife goes to visit her family. So he shoots her with an arrow, but carefully, so it's just enough to wound her painfully, but not enough to kill her, you know? And I'm thinking, well, (laughs) these guys are supposed to be so good at social relations. Well, (laughs) let me give you a counter story in case case you are... um, um, protective of the poor woman who is being shot with, mm. with an arrow by her husband. Yes, I would be. Uh, you, you, would, you would be, but uh, uh, let me tell you, uh, in my first, first year in the New Guinea Highlands, I was in a village, and I heard shouting. And it was clear that there were people who were really angry. Mm. And I listened, it was clear that the shouting was between a man and a woman. And boy, were they furious at each other, screaming. And so I was concerned, and I asked the New Guineans with me, what's going on? Oh, a a man and his wife, husband and wife, they're fighting with each other. They're fighting. What are are they fighting with? They're fighting with axes. I said, oh, my God, we got to go help. we got to go help the poor woman. And the New Guinean with me said, in pidgin English, no God, many strong, one kind man. Don't worry about it. The woman is as strong as the man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds like she needs to be. Um, I'm wondering if the kind of segregation of the sexes is playing a role. I mean, the the, the fact that the, the boys are being sent off to men's houses, taken away from their mothers, and I wonder if you were familiar when you were at Harvard with an early enterprise doing exactly what you're trying to do in this book of using traditional societies as if they were uh, experiments, long-running experiments that you could, you know, just look and see under what conditions do you have this or that. And John and B. Whiting looked across 189 societies and that remarkable finding that where you had the segregation of men from mothers and children was correlated with this bellicosity and aggression and the high levels of intergroup conflict, which are so striking in New Guinea, also in parts of Amazonia, but which you don't find so much in African hunter-gatherers. Right. There again, New Guinea is so diverse, mm-hmm. and we... we there are these striking societies, and then we have to place them in broader context. It is the case, Sarah, that the first societies with which I worked in New Guinea were in an area of the Eastern Highlands where there were communal men's houses. Mm-hmm. The, um, at age, each, each wife had her own hut, and in the hut were her daughters and her boys, until the sons until the age six, and at the age six, the boys moved into a communal house with the men. But that's just in that area of the Eastern Highlands. And elsewhere in New Guinea, there were not communal men's houses. Men and women um, live together um, in, in huts so that there's not the segregation. Nevertheless, it, it appears 
to me for whatever reason that the, the tenderness that one sees in husband-wife relations sometimes in the United States, um, it's not... It's not so obvious in New Guinea, but this applies not just to husband-wife relations, but what we would call friend relations. A, a big surprise for me, living with these people, so at first I go out there and they seem exotic, and then I discover that they laugh and they cry and they enjoy the same time I am, so that I think they really like me after all. And then after years, I discover that I think they like me, but then they say something that makes me realize there's nevertheless a gap in a surprising area. I remember after I'd been working in New Guinea for eight years, um, I and the New Guinean who I thought, thought knew best, we were together in a mountain camp, and we were visited by a school teacher, a Scottish school teacher, who stayed with us for a week. And it was clear that the school teacher and my friend clicked, they hit it off well, they were joking, they enjoyed each other. At the end of the week, the school teacher left to go back to the town where he taught, and my New Guinea friend lived in a village near this town, so he was going to pass through the town in an airplane on the way to his village. And as the school teacher was leaving, he said to my friend, come visit me when you come through my town. My friend murmured something, and then off went the school teacher. I then asked my friend, so are you going to go visit the school teacher when you pass through the town? And my friend shocked me. He said, visit him? What for? Um, in, again, in pidgin English was, um, look him up, look him belong, friend nothing. Visit him just for friendship. If he had a job to offer me, yeah. sure, but there's no advantage to me. And, and it made me realize that, that friendship, simply because you like something, mm-hmm. was not part of, like someone, was not part of traditional society. There were your defined friends, your own group and neighboring allied groups. There were your defined enemies, but, but developing, a, developing a friendship for someone from whom you got no concrete benefit other than the friendship, it was a foreign notion. Well, that, that makes me think of a question I had reading your book as you were sort of describing that there's a lot of suspicion and hostility towards strangers in, in many groups. And, you know, you weren't close kin with these people. You didn't have a daughter to exchange with anybody for a wife. So how did you manage to become sufficiently integrated uh, into New Guinean society to have some of these conversations? I, I mean, I, I guess partly it was a matter of cargo because you had something that they wanted. but. I wondered if you had tips on your conversational gambits. I mean, they shared your interest in natural history, I'm sure. Um, Two tips. One is that any European coming to traditional New Guinea falls outside the local rules. So New Guineans have their rules. These people in our clan are our friends. These people in the next village are either our allies or our enemies. And I, coming there from the outside, didn't fall into either the group of traditional friends or traditional enemies. But the other thing was that other Europeans coming in there were interested in things that the New Guineans didn't care about, black stuff in the ground, oil, rocks that made no sense. Here were these crazy Europeans digging rocks up in the rivers. Who knows what the point of that is? But I was doing something whose value was obvious. I was interested in birds. It became clear that I knew a lot about birds, and I could hold a conversation with them about birds, so I was worth talking to. Whereas, again, a a friend of mine who was an Australian ornithologist, knew a lot about birds, had good conversations with his New Guinea group about birds, but when he asked them, do you classify rocks like you classify birds, they said, no, we, don't, we just have one name for all rocks. 
And then my Australian ornithologist friend came back bringing with him a geologist. And within five minutes, it became clear that these people had 83 names for all sorts of different rocks, at which point my friend exploded and said, but you didn't tell me about these names of rocks, and it's very embarrassing. Why didn't you tell me? And their response was, we immediately saw that you didn't know anything about rocks, and we weren't going to waste time telling you things that you couldn't understand. <laughs> right. So it was the birds that also draw you, drew you to New Guinea in the first place. You, and you were very young. You were 26 when you first went. Were you, who, who were your mentors? How did you find out about New Guinea? How did you figure out that's where you wanted to go, this unknown place? My mentors were... Ernst Meyer, the great evolutionary biologist, who, when he moved to Boston, developed a collaboration with my father. So I met Ernst when I was in high school, and when I came to Harvard for my freshman registration week, the first professor that I met was Ernst. I tiptoed up, terrified, to the right. fourth floor of the Harvard Museum and met Ernst. And then when John Turbock and I went off on our first bird expedition to New Guinea, um, Ernst identified the birds for us. And then my father, as a physician, um, had mentored many young doctors, one of whom was Carlton Geidershek, who became famous for identifying yes. Kuru, mad cow disease, as a transmitted as an infectious disease. And Carlton knew a lot about how, how to operate in New Guinea. So Carlton and Ernst, between them, told me about where to go in New Guinea and how to operate in birds. But I've always gone to New Guinea for birds, 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 birds. Yeah, and then you and, and, and Meyer did that fabulous book on the birds of New Guinea. And... Right. The, uh, one of the things I really like about this book are the photographs. They're much more beautifully chosen, I felt, than, say, guns, germs, and steel. Um, you had one of my husband's photographs in that book, but I like these better. But I really especially liked the picture of the Dani man on his guard post juxtaposed with an American border patrol tower on the border between Mexico and the U.S. And it was pretty sobering, uh, especially in the light of the, the list of factors that you give of you know, what, where you have territorial societies. I actually don't remember the whole list, but I thought it was just excellent. You, know, what, you have to have resources worth defending and a certain pop, you know, go on with that one. Yeah, as you know, traditional societies around the world, some of them are highly territorial with patrol boundaries, as in the highlands of New Guinea, where there are boundaries with watchtowers. As you note in the pictures in my book, watchtowers, similar except that they're made of wood, not steel and without cameras, to the towers on the U.S.-Mexico border. So there are the patrol borders, but at the opposite extreme, there are also groups such as in the deserts of Australia and even to less extent among the sand of the Kalahari Desert, where there are not rigidly defined boundaries that are patrolled. And among reasons that determine, that affect whether you get well-defined patrol boundaries are whether, as you say, there are resources worth defending and whether there are enough people to defend them. If you're a band, if you're a sand band of 36 people, you can't, and you've got 18 males and nine of those males are adults, you can't devote four of your adult, four of your nine adult males to patrolling the boundaries every day. Whereas in New Guinea, 
a village tribal society where you've got hundreds of people in a village, you can afford to patrol the boundaries. Again, in the Australian um, desert, the conditions are so fluctuating that the waterhole may dry up, there may be a drought, there may be cold in your area, so you've got to be able to have reciprocal relationships with neighboring groups, and that's much less the case in New Guinea. The, the thing that was different between the New Guinea boundaries and the Mexico-U.S. is that there's so much migration across, um, and these societies are so increasingly interlinked, and yet I'm wondering uh, if there's not sort of a bad prospect for the future. I mean, when you start having territorial boundaries like that, they don't get better without some some work. They get worse, don't they tend to? A difference, Sarah, between mm-hmm. the U.S.-Mexico mm-hmm. boundary and the New Guinea boundary is that when someone crosses the Mexico boundary, they disappear into the United States as far as the government are concerned. They move into a Mexican community. Um, they're not individually recognizable. Whereas in small-scale New Guinea society, where you have a village of a few hundred and another village of a few hundred nearby. Everybody knows everybody by name. You know the people by name in the next village, even if they're your enemy. And there's no way that someone could move from one village into another village without being instantly detected. In fact, within, within five minutes, if they don't have a relative there, they'll be dead. Right. So again, it's back to our anonymity of our society. And yeah. I just have to tell you one, one interesting thing there, which is that, so the book um, is largely about what we can learn from traditional societies, but there's also something about what traditional societies learn from and admire in us. And I have a, a friend, a New Guinean, really sophisticated, very smart Papua New Guinean, who has spent lots of time both living in the United States and living in New Guinea. And I've been talking with her over the last 20 years, is she going to stay in the U.S. or go back to New Guinea? She could do either. She finally has decided she's going to go back to New Guinea. But she's told me what it is that she likes about the United States, despite returning to New Guinea. And one of the things that she most likes about the United States, she said, is that um, she can sit down in a sidewalk cafe on the streets of Washington and drink her coffee there without being pestered by all the relatives and clansmen and friends who want money for her or want to tell her their troubles. The anonymity that you can enjoy in a large society like ours. Um, We give up the intense personal relationships, but we also gain freedom and anonymity. I noticed that you dedicated this book to a New Guinean woman, Meg Taylor. Tell me a little bit more about her. Meg is that person. Um, Meg, a remarkable, amazing um, woman. Um, Meg's father was Jim Taylor, the leader one of the two leaders of the biggest Australian patrol to contact uncontacted people in the Western Highlands in New Guinea in 1937-38. Her mother, um, Jim Taylor, stayed in New Guinea and married a New Guinea woman, a New Guinea villager. Um, Meg grew up in a village in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Um, She didn't leave the highlands until, I think, late high school. Then she went to I believe, Melbourne for law school. Then she went to Harvard on a Fulbright. Then she became New Guinea's ambassador to the U.S. and the United Nations. She's now a vice president of the World Bank. She is really 
skilled, she's a wonderful, socially skilled person who knows, understands the West inside out and understands New Guinea inside out. Are there more people like Meg Taylor to lead New Guinea, you think, into the, these tremendous transitions that are being thrust upon them so fast? The flip side of the story that I told you about the, the couple dating who lacked the social skills and had to communicate by what he called by their handheld, mm-hmm. whatever they are. Um, yeah. All right, in, 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 in New Guinea, where it's face-to-face and, you, and, you, and one develops socially skill, social yeah. skills as a child, a five- or ten-year-old New Guinean will come up to me and negotiate with an adult. But when Chevron um, was negotiating with village New Guineans for oil ro- royalty rights, there would be these New Guineans who had never been out of their village or village area. And so the Chevron MBAs came in from overseas <laughs> to negotiate with them. And... And the Chevron negotiators were just driven crazy by the New Guineans because the New Guineans were just far better negotiators. They had a much greater range of negotiating skills, and they drove the Chevron people crazy, and they got what they wanted. We need them. We need them all here tonight. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Sarah.